This is a talk by Joel titled, An Overview of the Spiritual Path, recorded September 19, 1999, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. I did not have a chance to prepare a talk this morning. Jennifer and I just got back from a trip to Anacortes, but I thought I'd take this opportunity, since it is the start of our year, our center term, I guess, to just say a few words to remind us what this practice is all about, fundamentally. And since the dawn of time, people like us, just like us, have been asking questions like, where did we come from? Where are we going? Who are we? Really, like, who are we? Not, of course, your name or uh, what country you come from or this or that, but what sort of beings are we? What sort of creatures are we? What is this whole world that we find ourselves in? What is it all about? And perhaps most personally, how can we be happy? We want to know the answers to those other questions because if we don't, we don't know how to be happy. If we don't know where we came from or where we're going or who we are or what sort of creatures we are and what this whole world is about, then we're just living life blindly. And we're subject to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Shakespeare called it. And so some days we suffer, some days yeah, we get a little happiness. And we go back to suffering. In the East, this is described as cyclic existence. Round and round, happy one day, sad the next day, miserable the next day, eh, okay the next day. But round and round, all ephemeral, all passing, all impermanent. And we don't seem to be able to find any place of rest, any true abiding happiness in all this. So we ask these questions. And really, from the dawn of time, we ask these questions. And we know that because we have oral traditions that go back to the dawn of time from shamanic cultures, indigenous cultures. And they ask these questions, and they gave answers in the forms of stories, of myths, of tales. All human cultures have myths, creation myths, how evil came into the world myths, People can be satisfied with those myths. Sometimes they're not. Let me put it this way. Some people aren't. You grow up with a myth like that, but then you start questioning it. It doesn't quite fit your reality. Or you're exposed to another myth of another tribe, and you wonder, well, gee, why are they different? This is the truth. And so people look for philosophical answers. Oh, well, these are just stories. These are just myths. We can exercise reason and logic. And we can come to some sort of certainty about our situation, who we are, where we came from, where we're going. And if you read through all the literate civilizations, you'll find philosophies. Great philosophies. Very profound philosophies. Really, some of them really worked out in immense detail, some of them quite intuitive, but then you realize actually there are different philosophies. This person's philosophy and that person's philosophy, 
and someone else's philosophy, and you read other cultures and quite different philosophies. Some people have tried to combine philosophy and the myths into what we call the religions, the modern religions, we might say. Christianity is a very good example. It's an ancient story, the death and resurrection of the God-man. It's not a Christian story. It goes way, way back. And then it's couched in terms of a theology based in part on the Jewish tradition. And you get a whole worldview out of that, marvelous worldview, from the creation of time, this whole universe, to the end. And it's a great story. And then there are philosophers who treat it in a logical way, like Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas and so forth. Many people are satisfied with that. Many people spend their whole lives born into such a worldview, quite satisfied with it, and die. But some people aren't. Again, especially if you're exposed to other religions that have a different story and a different philosophy, a different analysis of what's going on. So human beings keep searching. Even though some people may be satisfied, as, as a species, we keep searching. We're restless. Now, it's interesting because all these answers that we create for ourselves as human beings are created by the imagination. Whether they're stories, myths, philosophies, religions. And today, we now we have science. Many people feel that science is going to give us the answer and has given us partial answers, at least. This was the old view of science from the 19th century, that science was suddenly sort of hit bedrock. We got some facts, and we got a few basic laws, and we would build on that, and we would build out and out. I don't think any true legitimate scientists ever thought we would actually get to the end of it, but we would at least be building on solid ground. So we knew what the world was back in the 19th century. It was made of atoms. We knew who we were. We were just a collection of atoms. L'homme machine. Who speaks French? Somebody. The, the man, the machine. How do you pronounce that? L'homme. L'homme de machine. Uh, who was that great Enlightenment philosopher, French philosopher? That was the title of one of his books. That was the beginning of this idea that uh, everything ran as a machine. You know, human beings are curious. We build a machine, and then we look around and say, oh, everything must be a machine, including ourselves. And we take a metaphor of something and then try to make everything fit into that box. So the world was made of atoms. We were made of atoms. We could explain everything by Newton's laws, the combinations of atoms, and we really thought we were getting somewhere. And we started refining that. Then we could account for electricity and magnetism and uh, it seemed to be this marvelous worldview. We had the fundamentals down. It just was a question of mopping up operation to just, you know, get all the details included in this. Until, of course, the first quarter of the 20th century when quantum mechanics came along and blew all that right out of the water. Atoms are made up of subatomic particles and nobody really knows what they are. That's the truth of the matter. What they are are creations of the imagination that fit certain mathematical calculations that predict the probability of events happening. No one has ever seen a neutron, a proton, any of these things. They are literally inventions of our minds to explain why this set of mathematics works. 
they're actually extraneous to the mathematics. That's why most physicists could care less about these philosophical problems. They do their mathematics and it works out. In each case, we're disappointed because our answer is a creation of the imagination. And whatever the imagination creates is impermanent, is ephemeral. The imagination is endlessly creative. It doesn't stop with some creation. It doesn't arrive and say, oh, this is it. We can see this clearly in art. You know, after Beethoven wrote his Fifth Symphony, we didn't say, okay, that's it. Music has arrived. We'll just play nothing but the Fifth Symphony anymore and we won't play anything else. Yeah. Or Monet. We didn't arrive with Monet's beautiful paintings. Or literature. Shakespeare is wonderful. I hope some of you are going to see these new Shakespeare movies that are being made. They're just fabulous. But it doesn't mean that we stop writing plays after Shakespeare. The same thing is true of philosophy, of mythic stories, of religions, and of scientific theories. Exactly the same. They all come from the imagination. Now, there is one category of people, you might say, that you'll find in all cultures, all traditions, going all the way back to the dawn of time, who have said, we can know the truth, the reality of who we are, where we came from, where we're going, how we can be happy, but we can't know it through the imagination. And in fact, that is our problem. We are looking to our imagination to give us truth. There's nothing wrong with imagination. Imagination itself is a great delight. For the same reason we enjoy art. We can enjoy myths, stories, philosophies, scientific theories. We can even judge some more useful than others in a specific context. They can be relatively true, relative to something you want to do. So as I'm fond of saying, I personally find the mechanical theory of how a certain level of reality functions more useful when my car breaks down than a shamanic theory. <laughs> and I take my car to a mechanic when it breaks down. I don't take it to a shaman. There are other cases, however, where a shamanic theory can be more useful. And I've known people who have been healed through a shamanic practice where modern medicine couldn't do it for them. So we can talk about relative truths of theories, of creations of the imagination. We can talk about their usefulness. We can even talk about their beauty. But they will never give us absolute truth. And as long as we are looking to them for absolute truth, we're looking through a veil. We're looking through a filter. So this category of people, the mystics, that go back to the dawn of time, testify to the fact that if you can get beyond the imagination, and not get rid of the imagination, but get beyond it, see beyond it, see through it, see directly without the intervention of that filter, that veil, then you will know. Not figure it out, not rely on some exterior authority, know directly, immediately. My teacher, Dr. Franklin Merrill Wolf, said, 
to a student of his in a dream, waking up in the middle of dreamless sleep, quite terrified, wondering what was going on, where he was, where he was going, who he was, because in dreamless sleep you don't know, and wondering what truth was. And Dr. Wolf's voice boomed out of that abyss. Truth is that which cannot be denied. Interesting. I'm very typical of Dr. Wolf in waking life. Cannot be denied. Cannot be doubted. Any theory, any philosophy, any religious doctrine can be doubted. You may not doubt it. You may believe it, but somebody else can doubt it. What is it that cannot be doubted? Not that you believe it so you don't doubt it, but just that it's impossible to doubt, impossible to deny. That truth. So if you read through even the earliest shamanic accounts we have, or, or I should say accounts of shamans from societies that have been little affected or touched by Western societies, and we presume that they mirror earlier shamanic practices and so forth, you find people who left the community, left the villages, left the camps, went off into the mountains, into the deserts, into the forests, did concentration practices, trying to get beyond the imagination, beyond the mind, trying to get detached from what the mind tells us to be able to pierce through this veil. The meditation practice we did this morning goes all the way back to shamanic times, the principle of it. You read accounts of Native American vision quests. You go off, find a little spot on a hill, take no food, no water with you. You have no contact with human beings. And you focus on your vision, your question, your quest, what it is you want to know. And you wait. You don't let your mind cook up an answer. You wait until you get an answer. And if you read some of the accounts of pure enlightenment experiences of shamanic people, they are exactly the same as modern-day accounts. So what mystical practice is, is about getting beyond the imagination. Not throwing it out, not getting rid of it, but ceasing to rely on the imagination to give us truth, to tell us who we are, where we came from, and where we're going, and how to be happy. And once we get beyond that, once we see directly for ourselves, immediately, all these mystics have testified, is that that truth is already inherently happy. We don't have to do anything to become happy. We just have to realize who we are. Unfortunately, it's a little bit more complicated than this because our imagination operates at a very deep level. It's not just what we consider our normal intellectual thought processes. If it were that easy, then walking a mystical path would be quite easy. But our imagination operates at a, a primordial level, you might say. It's the same imagination that operates in dreams. And just as we are fooled in dreams to think that there are experience in the dream, which is created by the imagination, is real, so we are fooled at that level in waking life. And one of the primary creations of the imagination for all peoples and all times and all places that we know of is the creation of an I, entity, ego, individual self cut off from the rest of the world.
This you'll find whether you look at shamanic cultures, Eastern cultures, Western cultures. When the imagination goes to work and creates a world for us, it creates a self in that world that now has the problem of finding out who it is, where it's coming from, where it's going, and how to be happy. <laughs> and this happens at this really primordial level. And once that self appears as a creation of the imagination, then the whole story starts to revolve around that. And then biological impulses, emotional needs, desires, aversions, all that gets swept up into the story. It's like a hurricane. You know, a hurricane has an eye, a very definite eye, except the trouble is there's nothing there. But around this nothingness is created this whole pattern with tremendous force in it that sweeps everything up into it. So it's not enough simply to get beyond the imagination, but this pattern has to be interrupted. So we not only have practices like meditation and inquiry, we have practices of selfless precepts, morality, of devotion, compassion, love. Because this is the one force in our lives that periodically raises its head that isn't self-centered. This is why all traditions consider love and compassion divine. It's the one thing that can override this self-centered conditioning. This whole story about I at the center of the world. When love and compassion enter our lives, we are at least willing to treat another person's interests or put another person's interests on a par with our own. Not without conflict, because our love and compassion is usually mixed. Not without some trepidation, some fear. My gosh, what will happen? But nevertheless, that force moves through us. And we do. We follow. Occasionally, we're put in a position where we'll even sacrifice our own lives for another person. That's how strong this force is. That's how powerful it is. Regardless whether you're religious or not, regardless whether you're spiritual or not, regardless of what your philosophy is or what your scientific theories are or what your mythology is. We know this again goes all the way back to the dawn of time because in those very myths are stories about people who sacrifice themselves for the community, the tribe, the people who are honored for that. That's the hero, the heroine. So this has been happening since the dawn of time too. So one wing of mystical teachings and mystical practices is trying to cut through the imagination, to get beyond it, to see beyond it. And the other is to harness this power of love and compassion, or better to say to unleash it, because it is inherently there as part of who we truly are. And we unleash it through practices of interrupting this self-centered conditioning. We don't really have to generate love and compassion. There are practices that will allow you to experience it in that sense, generate it, because often uh, a lot of people have not experienced the depths that are possible when love and compassion start to flow. But truly speaking, that is part of who we inherently are, or what we inherently are, I should say. So that's the other wing. And you will find these two in all mystical traditions, all times, and all places. 
getting beyond the mind, getting beyond thought, getting beyond the imagination, and unleashing the power of love and compassion to dissolve this conditioning away at that emotional level, at that primal level, at that impulse level. And when those two things come together, when that conditioning melts away, dissolves, when the mind is silent just for a moment, suddenly the truth is revealed. As they like to say in the Hindu tradition, it's as obvious as holding a piece of fruit in the palm of your hand. No big mystery. It's the truth of each moment of our experience now and now and now. It's not off in the heavens someplace. Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas, you know, Jesus got a lot of sense of humor in all the Gospels, if you read them carefully. In the Gospel of Thomas, he tells his disciples, he says, you know, if you think God is in the heavens, or the kingdom of God is in the heavens, then the birds will get there before you. (laughs) And if you think it's in the bottom of the sea, then the fishes will get there before you. (laughs) What he's pointing to is it's not some other place. It's right here, right now, only veiled from us. And as he himself said in the Gospel of Thomas, when they was asked, where is the kingdom of God? And he says, it's spread upon the earth, only men do not see it. It's right here and right now in each of our activities. This is why in the Zen tradition, I say, what is Zen? It's chopping wood and carrying water. But how can we see it? How can we know it for ourselves? How can we awaken to it? That is the question. So I just wanted to say a few words to remind us all of what this mystical path is all about. What's the big picture here? Because if you are doing practices like meditation or working with precepts and so forth, or reading books and whatnot, we can sometimes get very absorbed in the details, which is great, which is fine. We should pay attention to the details of the practices. Very important but we shouldn't lose track of the overview. And we shouldn't lose track of these two great principles. Asking this question and not letting the mind answer it for you, not letting thought answer it for you, not letting imagination answer it for you. Often the mystical path is called a quest. Quest comes from the root word question. They share the same root. Being open, like Jesus said. The only way you can enter the kingdom of God is to become like a child with that open mind, that mind that does not know yet, what the Zen uh, Buddhists call beginner's mind, that does not know yet. And that open heart that allows that natural love and compassion to flow more and more into our lives, to dissolve more and more of that conditioning so that it falls away. So whatever practices we're doing, No matter how technical, no matter how detailed, they're based on those two things. That questing and that love and compassion. Do you have any questions or comments or something you'd like to share? When when you were talking about truth is that which cannot be denied. Um, But it's also like truth when it uh, appears to you it's also cannot be described i mean it's that's right and why why can truth not be described this is something else you'll find in all mystical traditions that 
if you ask a mystic, ultimately, what is the truth? They'll say, I cannot talk about it. Mysticism itself comes from a Greek root, which is the same root as mute, cannot speak. That's what mysticism means, mm. cannot speak about it. So why? Well, there's two things. Truth is totally experiential. And to talk about it, you have to step out of the experience and then you're just going back to the relative level of communication. So it's... Um, it and is, you have to use words. And you have to use and words. And words are a reflection of thoughts. And thoughts are a reflection of imagination. imagination. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the very problem to begin with. So when we read descriptions, the mind seizes on the description as the truth. And this is what the Buddhists particularly warn against. Do not take the teachings of even the greatest mystics as the truth. They are fingers pointing to the moon. And if you take the teaching as the truth itself, then you've taken a doctrine as the truth, and then the next thing you know, you're going to take it as a dogma, and then the next thing you know, you're going to be killing your neighbors because they don't believe it. <laughs> no, that's true. That's the way it works, unfortunately. <laughs> But if we take them as pointers, and then we start to notice they always point to something paradoxical, something the imagination cannot get its uh, greedy little hands around, you know? Something that's always escaping that thought mind that's trying to wrap everything up in a nice little package with a bow and stick it on the shelf and say, now I have the truth. Mm -hmm. So there's a very good reason why it cannot be spoken. The speaking already creates the veil. Yeah. It, it just strikes me that there's so many things in life, there's so many teachings all the time in my life that are like um, saying exactly what you're saying. Um, that most obvious of which is my children. I mean, you know, it's like I cannot, I cannot hold them. And, and yet that has been the greatest, the greatest teaching and the greatest surrender for me spiritually. And at, at, at many levels. The, uh, the Tibetans say that this cosmos is all a teaching mandala. Hmm. When we are in our delusion, it serves the function of being a teaching mandala. Everything in the cosmos is a manifestation of the teacher. And so our problem is, first of all, to show up, you know, and then to try to understand. And we'll see the teaching flashing through, like your children, for instance, you know? But every corner of the universe, every nook and cranny is in a certain sense speaking truth, is showing us the truth. By the, the passing away and the impermanence. And the, well, that's you know, certainly that's, a beginning. One, one. That is a very important beginning. The first thing we can notice about all phenomena in our experience is that it's all impermanent. Mm -hmm. So... Yes, everything is, is showing impermanence. Impermanence also then, at a deeper level, shows us a little bit of what the Buddhists mean when they talk about emptiness. That the true nature of everything is empty. The very fact that things are impermanent shows their emptiness. Demonstrates it. Shows it. Do you see what I mean? If they weren't empty, they would be permanent. The very fact that they are here today, gone tomorrow, is speaking of their emptiness. The same thing is true in other traditions. They just put it in a different way. They say there is nothing but God. All this ephemeral display is a display of the divine. It in itself does not have any inherent existence. 
So Meister Eckhart says everything is made out of nothing. And as long as our will and our desire runs after nothing, it runs off into nothing, which is a beautiful Buddhistic way of describing why we can never get happiness from all this impermanent stuff. But if we saw it, Meister Eckhart says, as all manifestations of the divine, equally manifestations of the divine, we would see its true nature, then we wouldn't bother trying to grab this or that. Because this isn't better than that. It's all the divine. You already have it all. I'm getting a little off the track here, but I just try to make a point. You take something very precise, like impermanence, that you notice, and, and how your conditioning is affected by that. You can't hang on to your children. They grow, they change. And the cute little, you know, munchkins of years ago are gone, gone. And we want to so much. We can see the mechanism of how our suffering works right in there. And we can see the more we try to hold and do something futile, the more we'll suffer. The more we are able to let go, practice detachment, allow this to manifest, the less suffering we have. So all through, uh, or I should say all along a mystical path, it's not like you have to wait to get to the end to verify the whole thing. You can verify the teachings at every step of the way. At every step of the way. And you should. That's the only way the path really becomes your own. And you make it your own. Otherwise, it's just teachings. Somebody else is cranked out. Mm -hmm. And the emptiness is, is so surprising. You know, it's, it's, it's so the antithesis of our society and what we've been taught. You know? And it's so... Um, But it's not just see our society and what we've been taught. The reason the Buddhists have to preach emptiness in uh, East is because, you see, it's a, it's a universal delusion. Once we believe we are some self here, then that belief gets projected onto other phenomena. And we start to construct in our imaginations a world of solid things bumping into each other and so forth. So it, it's like a little seed all grows out of that. But just as the mystical truth is universal, the delusion which it undoes is universal. The culture will give it specific forms, and some cultures are sacred cultures because the culture itself, the society itself, values the quest and the question, who am I, where did I come from, where am I going, while other cultures don't. And so they aren't sacred cultures. Our culture doesn't. Science, which is our, uh, you know, what our religion and scientists are priests and so forth, they'll tell you flat out. They can't answer the question, why are you here? And most of them, although it doesn't strictly follow from science, most of them will say it's a false question. You shouldn't ask that question. There is no why. That's materialist view of things. There is no why to all this. So you better just eat, drink, and be merry, and you know, because tomorrow you're going to die. So this is not a sacred culture. We don't honor those teachers who you know, can point to this truth. We don't honor those people who take that path. But the delusion that things are solid, uh, individual, specific entities is, is universal. And it is surprising to find out, ooh, maybe they're not scary and wonderful at the same time. 
Yes. Well, you just mentioned there, uh, if I understood you correctly, when the scientist says there is no why, are you saying that uh, the sacred traditions imply there is a why, there is a reason, there is a purpose to this? If a scientist was going to be very accurate, a scientist would say science cannot answer that question. It's not designed to answer that question. Most materialist scientists believe the reason science can't answer that question is because it is a stupid question. It's an anthropomorphic question. We're projecting onto, the, onto this cosmos of dead matter, our, our stuff. Mystics say you should ask that question. Mystics say that is the most vital question to ask. Why am I here? What am I doing here? Mystics, though, say don't settle on any work of the imagination to answer that question. So there is a trick. If we try to answer this question from a mystical point of view, in words, we're going to end up with a paradox. The reason you're here is to find out why you're here. <laughs> and to find out why you're here is to find out that there is no why you're here, that this is all a display, just like there's no why to art. So we're going to go around and around like this. But to take this question as your North Star, your guiding point on a path is vitally important because we have to go through this process of inquiry, of investigation. You see what I mean? If we don't ever ask the question, well, then we sit around, eat, drink, and be merry, and we drop dead, and we've wasted a lifetime. I'm just, I'm just concerned that often, at least for me, and I think many in society, we get caught up in the why, so we invent reasons. We have a very deterministic uh, model of the universe about some greater power having a, a reason why I'm personally here. What's my uh, preordained uh, role to play? Uh, so that's a, that's the story, right? And, and I, you know, I think I, I think sometimes we tend to get trapped by that and make make up answers. I mean, I think that's where a lot of the uh, the traditions, uh, the myths come from, is in a quest to answer the why, to create a story that is uh, that fits neatly together. Do not settle for a story. Stories are great, but for the ultimate truth, a story cannot give it to you. So do not settle for any story about the ultimate truth. Find the ultimate truth itself and, and forget the story. Yes? Um, I liked your talking about the, the two sides of the quest, the one seeking the truth and the second of the heart and compassion. And I'm wondering if you could say anything more about this simple meditation process that we did and how that can be a, a way of opening our heart. There are uh, other kinds of meditations that more directly uh, address opening the heart. But even this is very important. And this is a f wonderful foundation practice for all these other meditations. Because if you watch your life carefully, what is it that closes your heart? And I think you'll discover that it's fear, and it's fear generated by thoughts. So you're in a situation where there's a conflict. Part of you wants to help somebody, but your mind comes in and says, don't do that. You'll be taking a risk. They'll take advantage of you or, you know, whatever. Do you know what I mean? And so the, the conflict is set up because your heart is telling you one thing and your mind is telling you the other based on some sort of self-interest here, trying to protect yourself. Now, if through this meditation practice, if we learn to be detached from our thoughts somewhat, it's not those thoughts won't arise, but we can recognize that. Oh, that's just thought. We have some distance. Do you see what I mean? So then you can act in spite of that 
thought. And when you act in spite of that thought, and when you actually do even just some small little uh, compassionate act, you, in your own experience, learn it actually feels good. You have a taste of that happiness you've always wanted, you know? And so the more you do that, then the weaker that conditioning gets, and the more you start acting directly out of compassion. But we have to initially just train ourselves to get a little distance on that egoic thought process, which always just grabs us, you know, and holds us back. So it's not really even about doing anything except seeing what is the nature of this. Oh, it's just thought. It's this idea that there's some self in here that has to be protected. And when you can see that clearly, then there's freedom. You don't necessarily have to buy into that. You don't even have to buy one way or another. You think of it as an experiment. Okay, mind. Okay, ego. That's what you think. This is the situation. Let me try this and see what happens then. So let me extend myself to somebody and see if it creates more misery or creates more happiness for me. Oh, creates a little more happiness. Okay. Try it. And then you're willing to try it more and more. We learn through experience. Yeah. So just even in that meditation, there's the seed of this. And that's why these two wings are connected. The quest for truth and the cultivation of love and compassion have to go together. My own teacher used to say, wisdom without love and compassion is sterile, but love and compassion without wisdom is blind. You know, there are people who have a romantic idea of what love and compassion is and rush out in the world and, and think they're acting out of love and compassion and find that the world stomps in them and then they get very disappointed. And they get very hard bitten. No more Mr. Nice Guy, you know. And if you look at that, that wasn't pure love and compassion. They wanted something from their actions, you know, whether to be recognized or whatever, you know. So we really have to bring wisdom, intelligence to bear on this. There are situations where what is the loving and compassionate thing to do may seem like a very rough, tough thing to do, do you know? If I tell you a story of someone who is sitting uh, out on a meadow, you know, on a rock, and somebody runs up behind him, grabs his arm, and chops it off with a hatchet. That doesn't seem like a very loving, compassionate thing to do. If I add into the story that the guy had gangrene, and that we're off in some wilderness, there are no, you know, treatments, and the guy's either going to die or get his arm chopped off, then it's actually quite compassionate to rush up behind him and chop it off Quickly, and get it over with, you know, the best way to go about it. And not say, well, tomorrow at noon, we're going to chop your arm off and let the guy, you know. <laughs> so, I, I just came to me. But that's just an example. <laughs> Isn't the imagination wonderful? <laughs> what looks like love and compassion isn't necessarily true love and compassion. We really have to look at the motive and deeply at the motivation stuff. And, and we have to look at ourselves. And so we have to <clears throat> apply a little intelligence and wisdom in that. Thanks for the disarming story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Bip. This is off in a different direction. Um, this uh, impulse that gives rise to the question about why, why is this all here? Um, in your autobiography, you mentioned um, after your awakening, being kind of surprised that everything was still there, <laughs> yes. and then you were still there. You were, your body and your thoughts and all that stuff was still happening, and that's a puzzle for me, too. I mean, my mind 
grapples with that when I try to go beyond the thoughts, beyond the imagination. I think, yeah, but what if I, what if I succeed? And then look around and it's all still here. What's, what's that about? Can you talk to that at all? Yeah. Um, only through a metaphor. And this goes back to what do mystics mean by why and then what would the answer look like? So one answer, one way to look at the answer is to say, um, why do you create music? Are you a musician? You, okay, why do you create music? It's just a very pleasurable thing to do. It's a way to experience creativity. And would you say that your creating music has any purpose, any goal, any... Uh, I mean, maybe you want to be a musician and get money or something, but the actual creation of the music. No, it's uh, just for the, the thing itself. Just for the hell of it. Just because it can. Just to show off. <laughs> like a peacock in nature who says, look at me. Beauty. <laughs> beauty. Yeah. Right? Yeah, beauty. Okay. So that's the answer. That is a uh, metaphorical way of giving an answer to that question. Why is it all here? After the... The artist or the artistic impulses discovered, its true nature is discovered, the canvas is still there. Not only that, the canvas is endless, the artist's creativity is endless, and there'll be no end of it. The, uh, the Sufis have a wonderful way of putting it, and that is the potentiality of God, of Allah, is infinite. But it's unmanifest. And what this cosmos is, is the manifestation of that unmanifest potentiality. It's all there in Allah, so to speak, but Allah is a great artist. Allah is a great musician who has just infinite songs. And this cosmos is just the song of God. And it's going to go on uh, in that sense. I mean, we're talking time here. Actually, time doesn't exist, but uh, aside from that, it's going to go on just the way there's that we don't come to the end of music, you know? And just as great music covers the whole range of anything you could possibly experience, from joyous, ecstatic, to martial, to calm, quiet, to sad, to really soulful, sorrowful, deeply sad, you know? It's all music. One isn't better than the other. And you don't go to a concert and say to a great musician, oh, just play happy tunes, this concert, you know what I mean? <laughs> This is why I said in the beginning, this is the happiness. And the happiness is the enjoyment, the appreciation of this whole cosmos as that expression, as the same way we enjoy music. If it's a sad piece of music, that's great. That's just as enjoyable. Blues is a good example. Some blues is just tears your heart out, you know. But it's great music, isn't it? You wouldn't want to live in a world without blues if you're a musician or if you love music, you know. So the best analogy I know is with art. And all the questions you could ask about the cosmos, you could ask about art. You know, it's not an accident that human beings do art. Why? Certainly from a materialist point of view, it doesn't make any sense. And of course, materialists have a hard time struggling with that one, you know, to explain it. How does it advance your getting food, shelter, clothing for you to sit on a rock and sing? It doesn't fit in that narrow... Darwinian biological mold of survival of the fittest and whatnot. It reduces your suffering. Huh? It reduces your suffering. Does it reduce your suffering or does it express your happiness? Mm. 
Have you ever been in the shower? You just got up one day and you just you just can't help it. You got to sing. You're so happy. <laughs> so maybe, maybe, I mean, you're right. I mean, if you're unhappy, you sing and stuff, it reduces the suffering. Maybe it's because you're tapping into your native happiness. And maybe the initial impulse of art is people didn't engage in art because they were suffering. They were expressing their true native happiness. There's sometimes I can't help singing, much to Jennifer's <laughs> disappointment. <laughs> yes? I sometimes wonder if uh, art can be seen as an expression of that quest or that search. And um, I don't know the answer, but I, I never really did tie it to art when I'm an artist. There was a time when art was only seen that way, only seen as an expression of the sacred. There was no such thing as art apart from that. Use the Native American example, the teepees of the Plains Indians, you know, they have these decorations on them and so forth, and the Indians themselves wear different paint and so forth. None of this stuff was anything but sacred. They were all expressions of things that happen in visions and dreams, manifesting this inner spiritual world they wouldn't have known what you're talking about, art for art's sake, or art as decoration, or, you know. So art initially was spiritual. Art and spirituality, there was no separation. It's over uh, time that they have become separated. So actually, the, in a certain sense, the answer to the question is, not only is it possible, there was a time when it was impossible for human beings to see art in any other way than as a spiritual expression. We've learned to see it in other ways. Our current civilization is quite unusual in its, in its approach to art. Most societies have at least recognized some sacred components to art, if not being itself just purely a sacred activity. Some cultures have recognized secular art and sacred art. I read about Hindu artists who, uh, they do the secular art for the prince who wants his you know, palace decorated, and then they go meditate to do Shiva, and they don't just create Shiva out of their personal imagination. They wait until Shiva appears in a vision, and then they just, you know, like you're doing a, a drawing of a person. I want to ask something. I don't know whether you know the concept of Shiva Shakti. Uh -huh. um, in, in Maya, it's, it's Shakti. It's all Shakti. And, and for an artist, and I've often thought about this and uh, studied with a master in India, and uh, he uh, said that for the artist and for the art, it's creating more and more maya. And then you don't go to Shiva. Shiva is the immovable. And Shakti is the mover, moving, right. dancing on Shiva. Then where does the artist go to? Can he actually get there? See, my, my teacher thought you would not get there, perhaps to the arts. You wouldn't get there except you, for the arts. You would not get there with the arts. Oh, with the arts. It's creating more maya. Mm -hmm. uh, could you have a... Yes, uh, Maya is a, uh, an interesting word. Maya means illusion in Hinduism. But again, Maya is also seen as the play of Shiva, a manifestation of Shiva. Shakti is Shiva's power of creation. Shakti is the feminine principle of Shiva, right? So all this cosmos is the lila of the power of Shiva. The Shiva is beyond the duality of a Shiva and Shakti, right? And so you could think of Shiva and Shakti as one step down, because now we're in duality, and Shiva is the audience and Shakti is the performer. 
And so all this is a great work of art, a great dance or a great drama or whatever, you know. And the specific Sanskrit word is lila, play. Also, our word magic comes from a similar Indo-European root as maya. It goes back to the idea of magic and creations of things that look unreal. Now, the, the ambiguity of this is that a magic show is there to entertain you, right? But if you believe that the magician has some real power and all this is going on and is real, then you are in great danger because then an evil person could have power over you, you know? If you see through the trick of the magic show, then you can appreciate the magic show, but you're not fooled by it. Do you see what I'm talking about? So this is the same thing with the cosmos as Maya as Lila. It's not Maya that is the problem. It is our believing that Maya is anything else but the play of Parashiva, the power of Shakti manifesting. Now, on a spiritual path, it is true that at some point you have to go beyond all form. Awareness, attention, has to be lucid, beyond form. So if you're always uh, immersing yourself in form, it will become itself an obstacle to you. So in that sense, yes, if you become fascinated with the forms and the stories of the forms and all that, that then will become an obstacle on your path. But there's nothing inherently that is an obstacle about the form itself. It's only our relationship to it that makes it an obstacle. Our relationship to it because we're fascinated with it and more deeply because we think the form has some inherent existence in itself apart from the divine. Once we get beyond the form, then you see the true nature of all form and then you're not fooled by form anymore. Then you enjoy the magic show. Then this is what it is, you see? Is that helpful? Uh, Rumi, great Sufi, said, every part of the universe can be a snare for the fool or a means of deliverance for the wise. It's not about there's anything in the universe itself that is an obstacle. It's how we view it and what we learn from our experience encountering it. This is why the importance of suffering. Suffering is what motivates us to go on a spiritual path. A lot of people spend their lives trying to hide from suffering and with some partial success for a time. They get themselves beautiful houses with swimming pools and maids and, you know, delicious food. And then they get gates and guard dogs and, you know, stuff like that. And they get a little fortress in there. And, you know, I mean, they, they don't have much suffering. They have subtler kinds of suffering. They tend to get bored. They tend to get, you know, picky and stuff like that, but not avert forms of suffering. So they're not really motivated to go on a spiritual path. Maybe, maybe then, you know, even in the midst of this fortress of security, then somebody gets cancer. That will motivate you, you know? <clears throat> so everything in life, good or bad, whether we like it or don't like it, can be, uh, can be a means to our deliverance. But everything also can become an obstacle to our deliverance. The highest teachings in the world can become an obstacle to your deliverance. The greatest guru in the world can become an obstacle to your deliverance. You become attached to, to that form. It's very interesting what Jesus said in the Gospel of John just before he's being crucified. He says, they're all saying, oh, don't go away, don't leave us. He says, it's necessary that I go away. Otherwise, the spirit of truth can't come and teach you directly. And what he's really saying is they become attached to his form. And he says, I talk to you in parables and riddles, but the spirit of truth will talk to you directly without parables. That is, you see, beyond the imagination. That inner 
illumination, that inner awakening, that inner, your own inner wisdom, waking up and recognizing. So, so what it, something about depression, despair, and as a vehicle, a uh, necessary vehicle, but people in our society are anesthetized after a certain age. And, you know, when you reach a certain age and you've got a problem, they give you a drug, they give you more medication to solve these problems. And if you're in depression or if you're in despair, we give you, you know, you take a drug and so forth. But a sense that would be that if not by not taking the drugs and by experiencing the depression and despair, to look at that dark side feelings is to move beyond and to grow in some direction. Uh, St. John of the Cross, a great Christian mystic, wrote a book called Dark Night of the Soul. Ah, and actually, he, he uh, it's not just one dark night. He knows very well these states. and There's the dark night of the senses and the dark night of the spirit and so forth. And they are recognized stages on a spiritual path. And yes, they are necessary. That's the whole point about this book. And you'll find you know one version of this, another in other traditions. Almost everybody that I've ever known on a spiritual path has gone through what's called maybe a desert experience or experience of aridity and so forth. The, there are two key things here. One is, the difference is, if you are on a spiritual path, then you're viewing it differently. You're trying to see what what is the wisdom that's contained in this situation. If you're not, it's it's very difficult to see. You just feel depressed and miserable and, you know, there's no oomph in it. The other thing is, and we should be a little careful about this, because I think it's a mistake to try to be totally macho about those things. Uh, I've known people who have had a manic depression which, again, I'm not a doctor or, you know, I don't even think really doctors understand it, but it seems to have a very clear biological basis that something screwed up in the, you know, in the nervous system or whatever. Right? And there are some medications that smooth that out. Now, in that case, personally, I would advise somebody, you know, take the medication stuff and smooth it out, and then you're going to have enough despair and hard times to deal with without having to deal with your body going wacko every six months or something, you know? Other times, somebody can be so deep into despair that they can't even do spiritual practice. But I would say that somewhere along the line, facing suffering, facing despair, facing the darkness is absolutely necessary on a spiritual path. Facing it and coming to understand it and using it then as part of your spiritual practice. Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? <laughs> and you're welcome to hang around and have some tea and chat and check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all. Peace to you.